Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. What a year it's shaping up for property. I don't know if you've seen the latest CoreLogic figures, but we're having a bit of a run at the moment if you haven't noticed. So I'm wishing you all the best with your property investing in the next little while. And of course, to help you, we've got another fantastic guest today. We've got Todd Sloan, who's a sales agent, author, and host of the Pizza and Property podcast, which I'd recommend you checking out. I've had a guest appearance on there myself as well, and he's had some brilliant guests uh, over the years. We have a chat to Todd about what he's learned interviewing some of the best and brightest in property, his insights for how sales agents manipulate buyers into doing what they want, and he has a lot of experience in flipping and renovating and investment as well. So we have a chat to him about everything that he's done there, his best advice, and a bit of a rundown on the Adelaide market where he's based as well. It's an awesome interview, which I'm sure you will enjoy, and here's Todd. Todd Sloan, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Pleasure to be here. It's been a long time coming. I've um, been lucky enough to be a guest on your podcast and we'll dive all around that. But um, yes, definitely was really excited to get you on on my show. But kick us off with who you are and what you specialise in, Todd. Um, so my name is Todd Sloan. I'm, I work in the real estate space as a sales agent, also a very passionate investor. Uh, bought my first property when I was about 21, but did all the typical, made the mistakes, bought the wrong one, so to speak. Um, had a bit of a, a mischief and um, accident on a drill rig and I couldn't walk properly for about four years. So my, my mid to, to late 20s were a bit of a blur, um, got up to a bit too much mischief and made a lot of silly decisions that in my early 30s turned around and started taking property investing seriously probably in late 2017. Uh, bought my first reno property, rented that and done a few of those projects on to number four now. And yeah, I think that's a, probably a, a fair 30 second summation. That um, that was a great summation. Uh, it's taking all my willpower not to ask several questions, <laughs> but let let me get through my set piece of the three questions I ask um, everybody. What were the posters on your bedroom wall growing up? Skateboarding, absolutely skateboarding. Um, yep. uh, I'm sure there were some other teenage boy posters up there as well that I'll I'll leave alone. But uh, otherwise, yeah, just I was obsessed with skating. Yeah. Tony Hawk, that sort of era, or is he too old? Yeah, no, Tony Hawk. So I was, I was a sponsored skater as a kid. So I was on the, the custom skate team and skated for a, a few shops down here in Adelaide. Um, so I had a lot of local skateboarders uh, on the walls as well. Um, but, yeah, I was a massive Tony Hawk fan, but he was a bit more vert where I was a bit more sort of Rodney Mullen, techie street stuff. Street, yeah. Right, Vert, that's the uh, knee pads, bigger boards, flying through the air stuff. That's the one. Yeah, you know. I'm all across it. (laughs) Um, What about property? How did you get started in property and what was your first investment? So, got started in property actually bit by accident. So, if if you knew me when I was around that sort of skating stage, I I constantly had a video camera glued to my hand. You asked me where I was going. I was the next Steven Spielberg. And then I, I started producing this uh, TV show and um, naturally everyone saw a kid with stars in his eyes. I was like 19 years old. No one wanted to give me money. And me being the very stubborn person that I am, went, fine, stuff is, I'll, I'll go to the mines and pay for it myself. And uh, I went to the mines and uh, started reading because I promised myself I wasn't going to spend it all on booze. 
because everyone told me like you just go up there and waste it i thought no let's let's stay in my camp room and i'll just read i've never been a reader before and i bought it's actually donald trump's book 101 just before donald trump did what he did to himself over the past decade um (laughs) when he was real estate uh focused and and i remember reading it and just thinking this this tv stuff and film stuff seems a bit too risky for my liking the more i looked into it it's like you either made it huge or you ate beans on toast the rest of your life and then he sort of had a, a bit of a dabble in, in property in the book. It was more about business, but the book. And, um, uh, yes, I really liked it. And uh, then I read Steve McKnight's book, Zero to 260 Properties in Seven Years. And it was just like, that was it. Something just spoke to me there. I was like, this this sounds like fun. And um, bought my first property, which was actually an apartment, uh, when I was 20 or 20, 21, I reckon I was, an apartment in town. That's pretty impressive at twenty one. Now we've got to um, we've got to circle back. You um, you 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 had me at drill rig accident. Um, now hopefully it wasn't too traumatic because I've just asked you to talk about it uh, on, <laughs> on air. But why were you on a drill rig to begin with? Um, I know that now you're a published author, but you really should have got the book around the drill rigs that that other bloke wrote because that went gangbusters. We'll come back to your book, <laughs> but what were you doing on a what were you doing on a on a rig? So I was uh, wanting to pay for my my TV show originally, and then yeah, once uh, once I read the real estate books, I thought no, uh, this this show is probably no good, and end up actually walking away from it. But I stuck on the the rigs for a while. I actually left and got a sales job because I was I was with a girl at the time that the whole two weeks on one week off roster, and sometimes it's four weeks on one two weeks off. I got a bit too much, but then end up going back to it. And unfortunately, I did um, did my discs. So it was it's the actual thing that I was doing. I was lifting a HQ rod out of the the faceplate. And um, you're supposed to use this thing. It's actually called a butt plug, and you, and you just plop it into to the back of the the drill rod, and then you lift it out safely. But what actually happens on the rig and what you're told to happen on the rig are two different things. So I right. lifted it out wrong way, um, which was just the way that you did it, and just felt this pop in my back. And later got told I did three bulging discs and two facet joints out of place, and because it was all thoracic between the T6 and T11, it was um yeah all the physios were just like kind of good luck with that champ. And they pretty much oh, gave dear. up. Yeah. Oh dear. And uh, yeah. And see, unfortunately, my uh, reptile juvenile brain was still a bit stuck on the butt plug. But um, <laughs> well, I'm just wondering what the angle is to you know how a butt plug could have saved my life, sort of stuff. I'm just thinking about your next book. Um, <laughs> now let's brilliant. try and get back on track. But yeah, I mean, yeah, that that's a tremendous setback. Like, and and you you, I mean, we've got to talk about you in a little bit more detail. We're going to get into a property. I promise. Anyone listening, this is still a property investment show. But we need to look at um, what I love how Woodhouse sort of shares in his Jeeves books. He talks about the psychology of the individual, and and your individual psychology needs a little bit of analysis, specifically. You've walked from Adelaide to Melbourne. You rode a bike across the country in 14 days. You used to be a skydiver, and then you did all sorts of naughty stuff just to take the edge off. You had your TV show. You were you were a skater kid. Um, are you? I'm just wondering, uh, like, how how safe are we to be talking to you? <laughs> I think pretty safe, but when you put it that way, I guess it's yeah, a bit of a different context. Um, but yeah, I, I think that. Everything that I have done has definitely shaped a lot of the decisions that I make now, which which I think um, are probably a little more calculated in the risks that I'll take and uh, a lot more managed. But 
yeah, it's, it's like that cliche saying, like, wouldn't be the person I am today if it wasn't for what I've gone through. Now, when you say gone through, and, and, and I know we're leaving some things out, but a lot of these things seem elective. Like, what, what possesses a, a, a man to walk from Adelaide to Melbourne, for example? Well, so the, the, the real story behind that one's actually from, um, actually, how long do we have, Mike? Are you, are you long form or? Oh, we're long form, mate. We're, yeah. we're normally a 45-minute show, so l- unload. Okay. All right. So it, it all started with um, a mate of mine, Justin. Uh, it was actually two mates and, and Richard. We walked the Southern Expressway one night. We were just sitting home really bored. And for anyone that doesn't know Adelaide, the Southern Expressway is 18 kilometers. So we each got a, a bottle of Southern Comfort because it was the only thing that we could drink straight that wasn't going to be too heavy to walk for that long and um, and just walked. And and as we're walking along, we're like, we just walked like 10 or 15 Ks. We're thinking, geez, this is longer than any of us have ever walked before. And bear in mind, we would have been like, I don't know, 19-ish, maybe something like that. And and we, we started just throwing sort of ideas around and going, oh, imagine if we walked all the way to town or imagine if we walked to Port Pirie. And I kind of remember if it was me or Justin, but one of us said, like, imagine walking to Melbourne. There was something about that that just stuck with me. And I just always had it in the back of my mind that that would just be really cool. And, and it was only because walking got taken away from me. Like I, I could walk, so I don't want to paint a picture of I was in a wheelchair because I wasn't, but I was in chronic pain and walked with a, a really severe limp for four years. I like, couldn't run, could hardly walk properly. So then when that actually got fixed, which was through Dr. Chris Brown and the pain unit in Adelaide here, she was just the bloody godsend. Like, she was amazing. And there was just this overwhelming emotion and it just instantly came back to me. And I remember starting to walk properly again and just I went home and I just decided, I was like, I'm going to walk to Melbourne. And and I, I started Googling it and I was like, pick a date. And for me, it's about logos as well. This might sound trivial, but as soon as I make a logo for something, it's real. So I, I calculated how many steps there were between here and Melbourne. And it turns out there was actually roughly a million. So because the average person walks about 1,300 steps every kilometre and there's 780 kilometres or whatever it was to between Adelaide and Melbourne. So I called it Million Steps to Melbourne. And um, got to work on it straight away. And I found someone that had uh, done the walk before, uh, Eliza Bartlett. She's absolute legend. And um, just said, look, can I, can I take you out for coffee and just pick your brains? And she was about to fly to India. So I, I took her out for coffee after she got back from India. And, um, yeah, she just gave me all the rundown on emotionally what it does, what it does to you, your body, your feet, all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, so then I just did it. And up until that point, I hadn't really – completed as much mike so i think there was almost this thing in me that was like i don't care what happens i'm doing this like this is happening so it was yeah like i got i got um uh, diagnosed with something called acute compartment syndrome between um how was it keith and caniva have you ever heard of that before no so it's basically, long story short, um, I had some troubles with my knee, put a little message out there saying anyone driving between Adelaide and Melbourne, if you could drop off a knee brace, that would be like amazingly appreciated because all of the shops were shut in Keith. It was a Sunday. Someone dropped it off in the morning. What it didn't say on the package is don't wear it all day. I wore it all day. Um, and it cut off the blood flow to my leg. So when I got up, I just I fell over, couldn't walk, and then went to the doctors. Uh, they scanned all my calves and everything, like did the ultrasound. And as well as saying, apparently I, I was born with extra calf muscles. He says, you've got acute compartment syndrome. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. Thanks, chief. And he's like, no, no, no. wait a sec there. Like, <laughs> you, you, you can't continue. Like, good on you, but you, this, it stops now. And I was like, I don't think you've 
really understand like this is going to happen he's like let me just sort of paint this picture for you todd if you continue on for another day what we're going to have to do is make incisions down your calf to actually release the pressure that's building up there currently is that if you for somehow part push past that pain and you continue for another two or three days we're actually potentially going to need to take your foot and at that point he had my full attention i stopped being mm. arrogant then and it was just like okay i've grown used to having two of these so let's talk so i, I started just spitballing all these ideas to him just saying, like, well, what if I, I hopped? What if I, I crawled? What, what if I got a bike and, and just pedaled it with one leg? And all these things. And eventually he said, that I can't condone any of these. However, if, if you're going to do it, the, which I can see you are, the, the bike is the best one. Go, go get yourself a bike and just don't pedal with the other leg. Just pedal with one. And, and that's exactly what I did. Uh, Dad drove me to, uh, where did he go, Horsham. And we just bought a little cheapy mountain bike at Kmart and I just pedaled it with one leg for a day to rest it, then pedaled it for half a day the next day to rest it, and then went back to walking. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I mean, yeah, all power to you. You, you obviously got um, a screw loose in the most positive way. And I can sort of tell, I mean, some of what I'm – the little that I know about you, Todd, is all sort of piecing together. You're a very sort of passionate, happy-go-lucky bloke who who just oozes charisma and drive. And um, yeah, I, I think with a, some of these things, it's like you you come out the other side. You're you're either going to be a broken man that gives up, or you're actually going to be a pretty pretty dangerous character. And um, yeah, I mean that's that's inspiring stuff. Well done. Thank you. I don't, I don't know if I want to be broken or dangerous, but. <laughs> Those are your only choices. Okay. Now, now I'm nowhere uh, near as qualified as Richard Feidler to continue on this track, so we're going to have to stick with property and real estate. Um, it does sort of feel like a bit of a come down from all of this crazy stuff to being a real estate agent, with all due respect. How does that sort of compare to your past and some of these crazy hobbies, and, and why was it that you chose it outside of the Trump book? So the real estate sales side actually had nothing to do with the, the Trump book or any of that. The real estate sales actually just came about when basically I'd finished the walk and it was like, all right, I, I'm, I'm getting better now. Like I, I can actually do this. So um, I was talking with my dad. We are just talking about different careers because obviously I wasn't allowed back on a drill rig. And real estate came up because he's like, you love real estate. Why don't you be a, a sales agent? And my, my honest response was actually because I, I hate sales agents. I don't want to do that. They're all like, yeah, I said some not nice things. So, <laughs> um, hmm. and he's just like, well, why don't you just not be like that? Just, just go and do it and do it, do it your way. Obviously you still got to meet your targets and everything, but just don't be a flog basically. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like, that's a good idea. I can do that. And, and I just got into it. I, I interviewed several agencies and I ended up with um, Tim's Real Estate, Valerie Tim's. She's just been a, an amazing support and really like that she actually nurtures the creative side that I've got as well. Um, but it's it's so much more than I thought it was going to be. Like my perception of agents was it, it's, I, I still joke about it with people now and, and say when they ask me what I do, I say I just sit down at this desk and someone comes in every day and throws a bag of money at me. Like I'm that's pretty much my job <laughs> but it's it's not that in any way shape or form it's it's like a game of chess every day i heard john mcgrath say that very early on in my career i remember thinking whatever mate you just sell houses 
but he's totally right. You're always figuring out a different problem, whether it's a, a divorce and you, you've got to figure out how to make sure that everyone still gets what they want. You can't take anyone's side completely, but you need to take everyone's side at the same time, you know, or whether it's putting together a negotiation that's just hanging by a thread and the difference between making this deal happen and not is the difference between your vendor retiring or not. It's, it's all of these stakes that happen in the background that make it such an interesting job to me. And I, I love that. I really, really love that. But on the face of it, the title, what you said is absolutely right. It's like, it's real estate agent. Mm. But in, in, the, in the inner workings of it, it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to it that I enjoy. Yeah, well, I mean, if there's a job description saying real estate agent or the role that you just described, one, I sort of think, ah, you can keep that. The other one, you know, it's something I could get behind. And I, I think, yeah, that, that makes it clear why it's been a passion for you. And uh, another passion project that you've had is your podcast, which I referenced uh, at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the show, Pizza and Property. What was the main motivation for starting that? Um, it's something different. I, I, I overcomplicated it to begin with. And it's actually funny you ask because I, I was only recently just watching the original footage. And originally it was this whole, again, trying to create like a big TV show basically. And there was just all these little technical errors. And I was doing it originally with a friend um, who, who's later since left the podcast. And um, basically we decided that why don't we just strip it all back, make it super simple. And we had the agreement that we didn't want to, big note ourselves we've always had the thing of let's let's talk to other people that have done really well because both of us don't like the the whole idea of and I'd, I'd never name names but there's some people out there that they'll buy one property and then call themselves an investment guru and it's like no why don't we actually talk to the people that that do really well in their specific field and share it as much as we can it's going to be amazing to to share that kind of knowledge and amazing for us to talk to people that we otherwise wouldn't get access to so there's a, a selfless and a selfish component to it. It's it's just been amazing, like, and and you know, like being doing what you're doing on this, Mike. Like you, you've been doing this for for longer than we have. You, you just you learn so much from talking to people, and it's such an awesome feeling when someone else writes in and says like, "What what you've been producing has actually changed the way I've been investing, or changed the the way I've been looking at things." Or it's it's a feeling that's hard to describe. I think. Yeah, I mean, I've had um, maybe one of those and about 15, your audio quality is rubbish. Um, but, you know, I get a little bit of joy out of both of them and I'm definitely working on the on the quality, but this is, uh, this is not my actual day job, so you've got to bear with me, people. But you're right that you, you do get access to a lot of people and I think often my most important job is to just shush and let clever people like yourself um, speak. What, what, what are some of the things that you've really learned from pointing the microphone at some of the movers and shakers in the Australian property and investment space? Yeah, so biggest takeaway is learn as much as you can. Like it's just never stop learning. Just be a sponge, soak up as much information as you can from everyone you can and sort through it all because not all of it's right. Some of it's bollocks and, and you've got to be able to have that sort of gut feel on, on what is and isn't. But don't dismiss things. Like I, I talk to a lot of people and I actually just recorded a podcast yesterday and um, it was around talking about subdivision. And as this young lad that I was talking to and, and wanted to send him one that I've, I'd done with Peter Kalusos, and oh, it's all the steps, rah, rah, and he just shut it down. He's like, oh, now it's right. Uh, my cousin subdivided heaps before. I know what I'm doing. I'm like, oh, so you've done it before? 
He's like, oh, no, no, but so that made good money. I'll, I'll be fine. And it's like, no, you're potentially about to get yourself in big trouble. And it's it's that, yeah. that, that sort of closed-minded mindset that I've learned from the most successful people. They're never afraid to go, you know what, I don't know how to do this. Let's find the people that do know how and ask them. It's, it's like the ego's checked at the door and it's just about actually getting the, the right answers. And, and the other big thing is just doing it. I used to suffer from paralysis analysis like majorly and now I'm just very much like, all right, what's the idea? Is it, it going to actually move me closer to where I want to be? It is. Yep, cool. That's happening now. Or it's not. No, okay, that's not happening now. Just be, be decisive instead of just sitting on the sidelines and waiting for the opportunity to pass you by and, and go, oh, yeah, that actually would have been awesome. And I'm sure that you've chatted to a few plonkers over the years. Um, I wouldn't name any names and I wouldn't uh, share any conjecture about um, any dud guests that I've had, but I think there's something important about finding the right experts and, and you, there's a lot of noise out there and you, you spoke about you know people buying one investment property and suddenly they're a guru how important do you think it is to find the right gurus and and is there a way that you can tell pretty quickly yourself whether someone is worth listening to or not for for me it's energy i i look for is is someone actually in this because they genuinely love it and that's something that you can pick up quite quickly i think i think i really think that we're all actually amazing lie detectors and we just don't really give ourselves enough credit for that it's it's something mm. that we normally will use words like oh i just didn't feel right or like oh my gut's just a bit off on that person it's like no you, you you're telling yourself like inside here is saying like nuts no, it's, it's bollocks that's not correct or i don't like them or i don't trust them or whatever i think that that gut feel is really really important and and one of the other things that i notice and it's something that i actually like to do myself and and this is a big tip for any of you talking to a sales agent talking numbers okay because my job when i'm selling a property is naturally is to get the best result for the vendor and i make no secret of that so if if you're talking with a sales agent and you feel like they're starting to talk around things it's talking numbers because you can twist words however you want but two plus two will always equal four doesn't matter how you try and twist it and, and that's something that I try and do sometimes if I think someone is pulling the wool over my eyes is I'll start talking more numerically. Mm, that's, a, that's an interesting tip. And um, you've got, actually got quite a lot to offer people from the real estate agent's perspective, like the, the, the tips and um, tricks that sales agents use against people and many of which are going to be featured in your upcoming book which i know has been released it's going to be re-released with a new publisher and we'll i'd love to get you back when that comes out but can you give us as far as um you're able to an insight into some of those tips and tricks and some of the other stuff that you cover off in the book yeah yeah absolutely let me just grab it i'm just um looking at it right now Look, but one of the biggest things uh, really like when you're negotiating with an agent is, is actually just making sure that you don't give away any what we'll call like uh, emotional triggers because this is something that I'll always look for. If, if someone calls me up about a property and, and says, oh, look, I, I really like it, blah, 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 I just I have to have it because, you know, my, my friend lives down the road or I think I write in the book about uh, my, my little Tommy is going to be the next Michael Phelps and the swimming center is just around the corner and this is everything we need. I, I am going to use that against you. And any good sales agent would do that. As much as that sounds rough and it sounds harsh, it's like if you're selling a home, this is exactly what you want a sales agent to do for you too. So it's, it's what we call like your emotional triggers because 
later on when you're trying to say, oh yeah, but Todd, this property over here only sold for for seven hundred thousand. You're after seven fifty. Blah blah blah. And I'm going to make sure that I pull it back to, yeah, but that home's about a kilometer away from Jennifer, and isn't it more important for you to be like right next door to Jennifer or like down the road from her? It's these kinds of things to remind someone subtly what's really important to them because mm-hmm. I could just stand there and brutishly tell you why you need to pay more, but no one likes that guy and no one's really going to mm-hmm. listen to that guy either. But but if we can pull it back to something that's emotional, it makes so much more sense from a negotiation standpoint because really we, we make our, our decisions with our emotions and we try and justify it logically later. So if you can pull that decision-making back to the emotional side, awesome. Awesome for, for, for me and my vendors. But if you're the buyer listening to this right now, not awesome. Like, that's not what you want. No. So, so trying to, to keep those emotional triggers to, to yourself. And, and, and not saying don't ever talk to an agent. Obviously, you've got to talk to them. But just, just those things keep to yourself. What, what, I mean, this sort of astounds me that people will go to the real estate agent and say, I'm looking for this sort of property. And they go, what's your budget? And my budget is this. Well, that information could actually be uh, used against you in a future transaction. And your job, it might sound, you know, nasty, but your job is to is to beat the buyer into whatever shape you want um, on behalf of the vendor, right? Because they're your client and the vendor is not going to go, oh, you know, I don't mind getting 50 grand less because, you know, you, you didn't use, you know, a bit of emotional tactic on the, on the buyer. They're like, no, I want my money. Exactly. Yeah. And, and whilst I think giving budgets is different, um, because we need to know a budget that you're working with to a certain extent because otherwise and, – and people say it to me all the time. They're like, oh, I've got no idea what I want to spend. And my first thing I'll say is, oh, great. Okay, I've got a few $2 million listings I'll send you. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, no, I don't want to spend that. And it's like, okay, so how much do you want to spend? Like it's everyone knows roughly what they want to spend. But just even if you are pre-approved for, for $10 million, it doesn't make a $500,000 property worth $10 million. Yeah. So just because you've got it to spend, it's, it's not so much that, but it's more so if you're willing to purchase that property for that. That's the difference. So so, something else like, and this, this always astounds me when, when people answer this question. Like if, if I ever ask you this question or if anyone asks you this question, like as a real estate agent, don't answer it. But if, if you submit an offer to an agent and they say, thank you so much, Mike, I really appreciate that offer, mate. I'll take it to the vendors, but just so we can avoid the whole back and forth tennis match, if they do end up saying no to this, what would your next offer be? Now, I'd assume you would know how to answer this, Mike, but just in case if you didn't, it, it astounds me the amount of people that actually go, oh, you know what, look, I'd, I'd probably pay an extra 10 grand. Or like, I mean, yeah, look, I'd, I'd probably do an extra Really? Grand. Really time, that Mike. happens? All the time. Is and that just because you're working in, say, a suburb with an IQ under sort of the median? I can't, really? And, I mean, this, this is why people need buyer's agents, I think, right? Because, like, my response would be, I'm like, oh, well done, Todd. You know, it was worth a shot. You know, refer to the previous statement, take that to them. You're legally obliged to do so. And then, you know, then we'll go from there. Mm. Run, okay. run along sunshine is another way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what you want to do. Very respectfully say like, no, bugger off, right? It's in that, that, that is your job as the buyer because my, my job as an agent and whatever agent you're dealing with, their job is to, to get the most amount out of you. Your job as the buyer is to pay the absolute least amount. So if, if you get asked that question, Mike's response, spot on. What I was saying, yeah, don't, don't do that. 
Like, I mean, I hope you do. I hope you don't listen to me because that's that's my job. But yeah. <laughs> this is like I wonder are you going to be ousted by the in- industry? You know, when these magicians share their secrets, and then they have to live under a black cloak or something. No, well, the, the way that I describe this is that there's certain things that I, I won't talk about because uh, the, you're absolutely right. Like this, this is what I do. It's what I do for a profession. But I, I look at it the same way as a magician would. It's like I don't mind teaching you sort of the tricks of, of how to change a card into another card or, or how to, to pull your thumb apart. It's like that kind of stuff. Of course, let's share it. Let's talk about it. Makes everyone a little bit more aware and a better process. But I'm not going to tell you how the girl disappears from the box. Okay, because those kinds of things, like yes, they they are something that I think for for respective of fellow peers in the industry, but also to be able to make sure that I can continue to do what I need to do for clients, that that girl stays a mystery. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And I think I guess there's a lot that you can share that's of real benefit that doesn't sort of, I guess, erode your trade craft, which is the whole value proposition that you bring to to the landlord. I want to ask you about um, investing and some of the, the typical things that you've done in the past. I've seen some great YouTube clips of you getting your hands dirty and doing all sorts of bathroom renos and things like that. What sort of stuff have you done in the past and what's been working for you? So mainly just uh, cosmetic renos. So like it's doing bathrooms and stuff, I'd say it's borderline cosmetic structural because they're not just like painting tiles we are ripping it all out and starting again but i still wouldn't refer to it as a a full-on structural renovation but i I just enjoy the creative side of that there's so many aspects for a renovation that the numbers have to stack up first and foremost like my, my biggest pet hate is when i ask someone what they're looking for an investment property and they tell me it has to have a nice kitchen or i just i want to put granite bench tops in because they're really lovely it's like well no <laughs> do the numbers actually stack up and so once you've done that side of things what what seems to really work for me is is budget control and i like that how do you make this look super expensive and really really good and really appealing but not actually cost you super expensive money and and it's this that that's that's a challenge and that's a fun challenge to do and then figuring that out getting hands-on is is just really enjoyable and i I think a lot of this comes from when i was drilling it was such a physical job then i i I used to come home and and read every night in my camp uh, camp room because it was so physically draining it was like time to engage everything mentally but because real estate sales is such a mentally draining job it's nice to then sort of actually go home and and just put a few hours on the tools like that side Mm -hmm. of things is is really really appealing as well it just gives you a bit of balance when it comes to the reno stuff i mean of course the numbers have got a stack and and on those numbers are, are there any particular bang for buck improvements that you look for you you might even go so far as to say like i'm looking for a property that has this wrong with it because i know i can fix it quickly and it has the maximum uplift potential I, my brief that i give to other agents is the worse it smells the more i'm interested i i, I generally look for something that as a listing they've done everything wrong because i know what will turn a lot of buyers off and 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 that shouldn't like stuff that is really cost effective to actually fix like things like selling with with tenants in there that can work well but that can also work extremely against you if you don't have the tenants on board so if if i see photos of a tenanted property there's stuff everywhere it's just it's an absolute mess it's like great because i know there's so many people that are just going to walk in and out of that and go too hard when realistically all that stuff's going to be cleared out anyway 
they're moving out. Like unless the lease is there in place, then obviously they're moving out when when it happens. But it's still it's not actually a part of the structure. So I'll, I'll look for things like that of, of um, let's say just a listing that I don't feel is is maybe managed as as well as it could be. So I'm not going to have as much competition on the buy-in because it's a cliche, but it's so true. You make your money when you buy. That's mm. that's that's really how it's controlled. Then on the actual value add side of things. I just like to do simple reno. So it's it's replace the kitchen if it needs replacing, replace the bathroom, and, and then just floors, carpet, curtains, nice and simple. I, I haven't added another bathroom yet. Again, if the project calls for it, I'll, I'm totally up for it. But it's really just been simple stuff up to now. When it comes to your sort of price point and your reno spend, can you give us a, a rough idea about what those numbers look like and what you're trying to sort of make the vowel worth uh, on the other side yeah yeah of course so last project um i got in just before everything sort of started getting a bit crazier here in adelaide well not just before probably six months before and um it was in it's in morford bale so it's kind of like an average suburb it's it's not a lower socioeconomic suburb but it's certainly not an affluent suburb it's just pretty average and i got a property that realistically in my opinion if, if we had addressed it and done some very very simple things probably should have sold for more like 250 to 270 and i got it for two hundred and fifteen thousand. And um, I spent I think just under 30 grand on it and that include also five grand on a pool I was going to fill the pool in, but it turns out it was more cost-effective to fix it than it was to get rid of it. Right. Um, and, yeah, that was new kitchen, new floors, uh, a few other bits and pieces as well, new bathroom, and that got revowed for 340000 So I think up, all up I made 80, I think it was 83 or 82 or something like that out of that, and that now rents out at $380 a week. Wow. You haven't got to do too many of those a year to start really pointing in the right direction, have you? Yeah, and that's something that I'm looking into doing potentially more of, more of in the future as well is actually being able to control a few more renos as, as I'm doing what I'm doing. And let's talk about what you're doing and, and the crazy Adelaide market that you just spoke about. Can you give us a bit of a general rundown on, on what, say, a non-Adelaidean needs to know about the market and, and what it's been doing in the past sort of five or six years with, uh, with sort of comparing it to the, the craziness of today? Yeah, well, if we're rewinding the clock, I guess even four years that whole four-year period, it's not going to sound very exciting, but nothing really. Like the Adelaide market has always just been, it's that stable little sort of one that follows Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane eventually. Um, I think it's right now, it's, it's starting to follow big time. And, and now we're seeing some, some really interesting times because there's properties that 12 months ago, I, I probably would have got, let's say, maybe 20 groups through and I, I would have been pretty, pretty damn happy with that. And now we're getting like the last property I sold uh, last week. We had, I think it was 60, 67 or 64 groups. There was like 150 odd people um, and 12 offers. Uh, realistically, we're, we're probably thinking it was going to go for like high fives, maybe sixes, and it ended up going in the above the mid sixes. And, and not just like one crazy buyer, like had umpteen people fighting over it in that price category, price category because we're just chasing prices at the moment. And it's not just one standalone like that. I know 660 doesn't sound like much to, to people listening in from, from Sydney, but that's a, a reasonable price point in Adelaide. That gets you like kind of that, that 15Ks away from the city sort of price point, nice little four-bed, two-bath home. 
Whereas even if we go even further to some of the lower socioeconomic areas where like uh, Humphfield Heights, I, I sold a property that again, 12 months ago would have got 270, 280, maybe 290 at an absolute stretch and end up selling it for 320. So mm. even then in this place, like there's, I, I would have actually bought it if I was allowed to buy my own listings. Like it was the perfect one. It was a three and one, but the floor plan would have easily changed it to a, a four and two because I had the extra living area. And yeah, really, really good property to, to, to renovate. And we're just seeing more and more of that around the, the whole market. There's not like one section that's exploding. Whereas if we do rewind more, like let's say back to around 2015, 2016, Colonel Light Gardens just went absolutely crazy. That that just went, yeah, insane. Um, but and, and not much else really happened. And, and that's a lot of like Peter Kalusos talks about this, the, the close the proximity to the city or the sea and high, con- high concentration of character homes really helps turn that gentrification wheel. And, and that was the time for, for Colonel Light Gardens. But otherwise, not much was happening. Whereas now it's like everything is just under strong demand. And in my opinion, from the people that I'm speaking with, one of the biggest reasons is we, we just don't have the stock. It's, just, it's right. very, very much a supply demand issue. And that was that was the next question is why, and I think stock levels are very very low ac- across the country, but that's just really driving everything, I guess. And I, I was also going to ask, you know, because investors always want to know, well, where's the hot spot? Like, where should we be going if we're wanting to buy in in South Australia? But it, you know, it, it sounds like you get anywhere, and it's it's going pretty hot. But are people maybe paying overs? Are there pockets where we should be we should be focusing on? Well, and and this is the thing: it's it's only paying over if the the song stops. If the music stops, then yeah, you you've paid over, and it's been a bubble and it's burst. But if it keeps going, then even if you do need to pay a five percent premium to secure it, well, then great. You, you're gonna you're gonna win, and that's that's the sixty four million dollar question. Is no one really knows when the music's gonna stop? Like I don't think many people really actually understood that how long like the Sydney boom is gonna go for. Like what was that? Something like late twenty fourteen to twenty seventeen. Like that didn't just go for twelve months. That that really steamed ahead. So I, I suppose it's about picking when the the bottoms or not the bottom when the top's actually gonna occur. So as far as hot spotting, I, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I'd listen to people far smarter than me on that one. Like, I'd, uh, I'm sure you've probably talked to Arjun Paliwal. That guy's a bloody genius, in my opinion. <laughs> He's very good at what he yep. does. He's um, been on the show. Yeah. A- anyone that really understands the the data, because I, I'm not data-driven in that sense. And, yeah, so I, I don't think I'd feel comfortable picking a hot spot, to be completely frank, mate. Well, it sounds like you could just stick your digit in a map at the moment anyway so there's maybe not much from that conversation conversation to be to be won who who's doing the buying is it in investors or is it like most of the country where it's first home buyers and and owner occupiers that are doing most of the buying so if, if we look at this in in sort of levels uh, i'd say that the the bottom levels of the market it's being pushed up at the moment from a lot of first home buyers like if, if you sort of strip this back and look at, let's say, a, a couple that maybe they were renting previously and they'd been happy renting their whole lives, just saving up 30, 40, 50 grand was never even a thing. And then all of a sudden you've got $40,000 that's appeared in their bank accounts because maybe both of them have taken 10000 out of super each way of the last financial year. And now it's cheaper to actually buy than it is to rent because interest rates are just absolute stupid lows at the moment. Like we've literally never seen them in history this low. And, mm. and they're looking at it going, you know, we don't care if we need to pay an extra 20, 30, 40 
however many thousand dollars because 12 months ago we were happy with a life of renting so if we can actually own it yeah amazing that's that's a wonderful thing now that's that's sort of trickling up or knocking on to to the next tier of the market so then you've got people that beforehand would have been roughly around that price category going hold on a second if they're getting that then then we should be able to get more for ours as well and so now we're finding because that's happening that the investors have started jumping in going hold on we're, we're seeing a bit of growth trend here and so i'm doing a lot more buyer walkthroughs with live of facetime people in sydney people in melbourne not as much brizzy probably more sydney and melbourne because they're seeing a lot of growth potential here and it's then on the other side of it we're also seeing the lifestyle change because of because of rona what it's done uh, how we're now working remotely it's changed the way that we're doing it people selling stuff for, for twice as much that's half as good to buy something that's twice as good for half as much. Like if you sell your $1.5 million home in Sydney or $2 million home in Sydney, that's probably an okay home. It's, it's not bad. It's nice. But you come over here with $1.52 million, that's getting you something outstanding. Like you, yeah. you're on the esplanade, like living the life. So people are starting to look at that now going, do, do I actually really need to live in Melbourne or Sydney? And we're seeing a lot more of that that migration happen. Well, at least I, I am personally can't speak for the whole state. That's that's what I'm seeing. I think that's happening across the country. It's I think I was talking to someone in a podcast recently. It's like the retiring in Bali situation where you might sort of be on the breadline here, but you move to Bali and suddenly you're the king of your own little principality over there. It's spot on. Yeah. Of the investor clients that that you've seen you've transacted or or might even be podcast guests is there anything that you think that they have in common that property investors can learn from yeah i i think that it's probably the the same kind of way of uh, like i don't have kids and you've got little ones mike but having a, a child doesn't make you a parent it's, it's the same way of, uh, this is the way I look at it personally, having a, a, an investment property doesn't actually necessarily make you an investor. Like to, to be, again, I say this as a childless person, but to, to be a good parent, it's, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take effort. It's love. It's care. It's all of this. And I think the same kind of thing implies that people that I've spoken to that are really successful in this, that really do well in it, they, they put a lot of effort into it. They don't just go, oh, that's great. I'll jump on that. That looks like a good investment. They, they actually, they understand all the answers to the questions that they should be asking and they know the questions to, to ask as well. So I, I think effort would probably be my, my short answer to my, my very long answer in contrast. No, that's good. I mean, that gives us a good background and, and I, I think you're right. You can, you can purchase an investment property just by having a bit of savings and think, oh, I'm an investor now, but um, you could you could get to quite a few properties if you had enough money and not really understand the the business like nature of property investing which the successful ones do really really well i want to know um what you think is going to happen over the next 12 months um have you got any crystal ball for either your region or nationally what what's your what's your feeling about the market and and the direction that it's going in so I, I always have to say, I feel like I have to say, I'm not a financial advisor. Please seek independent professional financial advice from your trusted professional. I, I swear, I could, I could just get an R7 stamped on my forehead. It would save me a lot of time. But, but <laughs> my my gut feeling, just as an individual, as as Todd, I I personally think that we're in for some good times for the next two years. I, I think that, and but again, I I thought the market was going to crash last year with Rona, and then it turned around. So who knows? 
And and this is where, to me, it comes back to if you're a long-term player in this game, I've never met one person that says, I'm so disappointed I held on to that house for 30 years. Not one. And I never will meet anyone that says that. So whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, to me, a certain extent of it, I'm kind of thinking it's, it's irrelevant. You, you keep building your portfolio, keep doing what you're doing, getting you to where you want to go. I think you, you're going to win in the long run. So market-wise, as a, as a wrap-up, I personally think we're, we're up for some good growth. But yeah, who knows? It's, it's the $64 million question, isn't it? It is indeed. But I, uh, I think you're right, and I think the evidence is, is, is behind you. So <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't be too crazy to say that. As a bit of a homage to your podcast, uh, Todd, which everyone listening to this should listen to, it's, um, it's admittedly way better than this one, uh, the Pizza and Property podcast. One of the questions that you ask everyone is, what's your favourite pizza topping? Now, I found out that no one's ever asked you that before, so let's, let's hear it. My favourite pizza is cheese, and more specifically, uh, it's it's a new one that I only just tried three weeks ago from uh, 400 Grady in um, in Brunswick in Victoria. It's the 154 cheese pizza, literally the world's cheesiest pizza according to Guinness World Records. 154 varietals. For, yeah. So what they do because that was my first question is like, how do you fit 154 cheeses on here? And she, she was like, oh, good question. So every three days we go to the markets and we buy 154 blocks of this cheese. We we melt it all down and then we reform it again into a grateable new piece of cheese. And then that big block of cheese gets grated and then put all over the cheese pizza with the 154 varieties all sort of mushed together. Wow, that is so Melbourne. It's not funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It sounds delicious. There you go. Here I was thinking you were just going to say something simple like Hawaiian, but I should have known better from some of the stuff we learned about you in the beginning. Todd, how do people get in contact with you if they want to have a chat? Uh, If you want to have a chat, just simply reach me at info at pizzaandproperty.com. So just, yeah, info at pizza and, though, it's not ampersand, the sign. I only recently learned that that's actually called ampersand. Did you know that? Have I just been living in the past? Yeah. I did know that one, but I, I would have to say I was I was an adult before I learnt that. Um, it it doesn't get a lot of love. The actual real name for that symbol, it's like um, people are more likely to refer to it as Shift Seven. Yeah, <laughs> is it Shift? Oh, it is too. Shift well seven. done. There you are go. You, do you have a keyboard in front of you as well? I do. I cheated. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, you can get me at, at info at pizza and property. Um, otherwise, yeah, just go onto to the YouTube channel, type in pizza and property. And um, yeah, always happy to, to chat real estate with, with anyone that wants to give me their time. It's, it's good fun. Beautiful. And we want to have you back once this uh, book is published as well. But to, to take us out, another one of my standard questions is if you can impart one piece of advice, what would it be? Right, just, just do it. Take action. Just you don't, don't sit on the sidelines any longer. Love it. It's been an absolute pleasure, Todd. Thank you for for coming on the show and uh, and sharing your goal today. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot about you, and uh, look forward to catching up for a beer soon. Absolutely. I'll actually be in Sydney in March, mate. We'll we'll have to catch up. Look me up. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, Mike.